Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. Class is in session, about to learn a lesson in the game. We embrace the pain, take it and we make some change. Without scarcity, I don't know where I'll be. It's how we learn and now it's your turn. Let's get it. Welcome to the University of Adversity. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to University of Adversity. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is a deep one. It's very close to my heart. Talking about suicide, talking about um, mental illness, depression, all that stuff. You know, it's, it's for so long, it was a taboo topic, you know, and I really want to make that. I want to shine light on a topic that really... Um, People have the stigma around uh, that if you think these thoughts or you're going through this, that you're this kind of person. And I want you to know it's okay. You're normal to have these thoughts. Everybody's on a different spectrum, part of the spectrum. You know, some people need medication. Some people are super depressed, suicidal thoughts. That's fine. I believe, you know, there there's a place for this stuff. But I also believe that on the other side, we all go through this shit. We all go through hard times. We all go through. The, it's it's okay. What I'm trying to get at is don't feel bad for having thoughts. Don't feel bad about if you're having a bad day, you may think of something. We all go through this shit. We all go through. Life isn't easy. It wasn't meant to. It's meant to make us stronger. It's meant to, to, to build character, right? You know? And I just want you to know wherever you're at, it's okay. It's okay. You know? Don't feel bad. But understand that there's always tomorrow. The sun will come up. There's always tomorrow. If you can get through that hard time where you're getting suicidal thoughts or depression, understand that you're not alone. We all go through that. Tomorrow, you will have a new day, a fresh start. And understand that people around you, there's people to help you just to get through that, just to make the decision to stick around, right? Because the things that, you know, if you decide to take that, make that decision, that, that decision that, that ends it all, that means other people around you are going to have to deal with it. And believe me, I've dealt with it, and it's not easy. Once once we lost my younger brother, my dad went down a downhill spiral and ended up getting cancer from it and dying because of the pain and suffering he had to endure from losing a son. Okay, Now, I know this is very deep to get into the intro, but I wanted to express how important this is to me and how much awareness that I want to do. I want to speak about this. I want to really... Paint the picture that it's okay to talk about this stuff. It's okay. And my next guest is really good at that. He's um, he suffered depression his whole life. He's had suicidal thoughts. He's gone through all that. But I really liked his perspective. My next guest today, his name is Frank King. He has a lifetime battle with depression and thoughts of ending his life. If, if this is something that interests you, really listen to the end, really understand. And understand that this this is deep to my heart. So... Without further ado, enjoy the episode. Frank King coming right up. Frank, so, how you doing, my man? I am living the nightmare, baby. <laughs> I had an article this morning in the New York Times. Today is, uh, you know, I'm sure somebody's they're listening to this after the pod, after the date, but it's the fourth of March. There's an article on um, stigma people are facing who came back from that area of the world where my cruise ship was. I was on the Westerdam, which had no flu, and then the Diamond Princess, which was ravaged by the flu. And people coming back from there, even if they're negative, are facing 
you know, stigma. People, they thought were their friends or shunning them. People are avoiding them in public, you know, yeah. telling them, I can't believe you're out. Why aren't you, you know, self-quarantining and all well, I'm negative. But anyway, so it's, it's been a bit of a, been a bit of a nightmare. I had no idea how bad um, internet bullying could be because I'm 63. And when yeah. kids said they were bullied online, I'm like, how can that be? Because I, when I was a kid, you got bullied in the locker room. They'd snap the towels and they, you know, give yeah. you a black hawk and they, or, you yeah. know, <laughs> very yeah. much. A, and I realized when I was a kid, maybe you, yeah. uh, when you left the school, you left the bully behind. Now they carry the bully home in their pocket. Yeah. So, and the people attacking them aren't strangers like we're attacking me. They're people that they have to face the next day and the day after that. I mean, I can understand why the teenage suicide rate and, you know, rate of major depressive disorder is on the rise because of that, you know, that constant onslaught. I can't so. imagine what it would be like to have, yeah, like, like you said, back in the day with school, if you had a bad day, you kind of, you go home, you sort of forget about it, you regroup or whatever, and then you start fresh. You don't have the people connected to each other all the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know how I would have gone through if I had to have social media and a cell phone all the time. Like these kids now, they're always connected. And yeah, it's, it's really, I just, I, I just look back and I'm like, thank God. Like, <laughs> yeah, I remember I'm in junior high school, a guy named Michael Kuntz. Uh, whom I've become friends with since, uh, he said, uh, meet me on the playground. I'm going to kick your butt. And, uh, okay. <laughs> so I just got on the bus and went home. I went, why would I meet him? I mean, it, and you know, the next day never mentioned it again. So I, you know, but, but yeah, it's just, I can't, I'm glad I'm not a teenager right now in school facing all that. Yeah. And I just, before I even, you know, kind of go and let everybody know more about your backstory. I, I kind of wanted to get your idea on this coronavirus itself because, you know, talking about it and as you, you say, people are getting, people are getting bullied about this and like how, how much of it is scare tactics, do you think? Just to, or how serious, like, I mean, what is your perspective on it? Because there's always been these things that have come up every year, I feel like, that there's always well, something that's going to kill you. Yeah, the, there are seven coronaviruses. Or seven, uh, seven of those sort of things. There's SARS and MERS and the coronavirus because it looks like a crown, okay. um, and it is it is deadlier by a, by a, by a you know a factor of five or six, seven, eight, nine, ten times than the ordinary flu. But uh, you know the ordinary flu has already killed eighteen thousand plus in this flu season in the U.S. alone. Probably kill sixty or eighty thousand before it's all over. Uh, and the coronavirus seems to be hardest on people with underlying medical conditions, the elderly or somebody who's particularly young and susceptible. In China, the reason one of the, one of the reason they're dying so rapidly is, I don't know if you've ever been to Asia, but man, uh, they smoke. Anywhere in Asia you go, you could you could smoke a ham. Because it's, yeah. I mean, and so they've got this underlying respiratory illness. I think, of course, I, yeah, I do believe the media has, has hyped it. Um, and that was my problem. When I came back to the U.S. from Cambodia, I'd gotten cleared by the CDC as a U.S. office in Cambodia. And, of course, I got cleared by the CDC in Seattle. They weren't going to let me back in the country if I was sick. And, but nobody, you know, nobody believes if I say, look, the CDC cleared me. They go, we don't trust the government. Well, I tested negative. Well, people who test negative, you know, then test positive. Well, I'm outside the incubation period. Well, you know, who knows what the incubation is. Like, okay, I give up. I, there's no way I can convince you 
you know, that, that I don't have the, I mean, it was, it was ugly. Uh, yeah. I, I changed my home phone number. I shut down three social media accounts. My neighbors uh, on next door, this thing where you, you know, you have lost dogs, found dogs, you know, we're selling a couch. They ca- came on there and said, you know, listen, tell your husband, we'll bring meals over and put it on the front porch. Or you just have to leave the house. I, uh, <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. First morning at Starbucks after it all broke for me and everybody's coming after me online. I'm in Starbucks. You know what? They ask you when you go to Starbucks when you order a cup of coffee, what's your name? And I paused. I'm thinking, do I tell her? So I went, Ed. Uh, you know, because I didn't want to have any kind of confrontation there in the Starbucks because, you know, people were, yeah, I think I think a lot of it is media hype. I think, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get worse before it gets better because they're not sure how it's being transmitted to these older people who've never traveled and never been with anybody who traveled. So, yeah, it's, but I mean, you know, you don't have to go to Costco and clear off the shelves. Yeah. Crazy! Wow, man, that's um, that's a challenge. That's that's a massive adversity in itself. Just the people dealing with just trying to get home, and like yourself, like having to deal with people that don't know the facts, and then they're <laughs> scrutinizing you, and they don't really even know what's going on. No, and Crazy. I wish Lance, I wish Lance, I wish I could have done what they said I did. I wish I wish I could have sneaked out of Cambodia. I wish I could have sneaked into the U.S. Lance, I wish I had that skill set. Yeah, no because I, I wouldn't be a speaker. I'd be Jason Bourne. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, all right, you, I've, I've um, dove into your TED Talks, and I really like what you're talking about. I really like your mission about, you know, talking about depression and suicide, because as I spoke to you earlier, it, it's impacted my life and my family's life, and, you know, it forever will be. Uh, something that is close to my heart because, you know, there's so many people that are going through this and there's so many people that are so close to making that decision and ending it all. And then there's so many that don't and go on to do amazing things. And I just want to say thank you for the work that you do because it's super important. And the fact that you have a way of spinning comedy around the idea and, and, and understanding that you know, you can't, if you have laughter and joy and, and, and things like that, of that nature in your life, it's hard to be negative and sad and depressed at the same time. So it's, yeah. so yeah, thank it's also, you for that. Oh, you're welcome. It's also easier for the audience to digest if, you know, I said to the audience, look, um, I came close enough to dying by suicide. I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. And then I pause and I go, oh, oh spoiler alert. I did not pull the trigger. And they laugh. And I go, yeah, and a friend of mine came up to me after a keynote. He'd never heard me say that. And he says to me, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? Big laugh. So, you know, if you, if you hit them with something serious, give them a little comic relief, and they're ready for the next serious thing. So it's a lot more digestible if you, if you leaven it with some humor. And people ask me, you know, that comedian doing talks on depression, thoughts of suicide, well, like you. It runs in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I'll spare you the details. But it's in my first TED Talk, uh, Matter of Laugh or Death. And then, as I said, I came close enough in 2010 after losing everything in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy uh, to killing myself. I could tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like, which I, I say that in part for the people in the audience living with mental illness. Because at that moment, their heads come up and they realize that I get it. I hear the same music they hear. 
you know, I have context. Uh, and, and when I'm done, I always say, look, we'll do a Q&A for the entire audience. And then when I'm done, if you have an individual question that you don't, you don't want to ask in front of everybody, like, hey, I'm crazy, can you help me? I'll hang around. And usually there's two, three, four, five, sometimes six to eight people lined up with a story, a question, a question for them, a question about a loved one, what do I do, where we are resources, so forth and so on. So, And somebody said to me, another speaker friend, how would you pick the topic of depression suicide well the topic actually picked me <laughs> yeah i didn't have a choice really and you know when i started comedy in 85 day after christmas i started my career after college in insurance and i'd seen all the great you know the great motivational speakers the zig ziglers and you know and uh, and those guys and i always wanted to do that i always wanted to make a living and a difference like they did but i, I, I never could figure out what the heck i had to teach anybody so um Day after Christmas, 85, my girlfriend then, my wife now, went on the road for 2,629 nights in a row nonstop, no home, seven years and change. Uh, and we, we back then, they put you up in a three-bedroom condo. They call it the comedy condo. So I worked with and lived with Seinfeld, Dennis Miller, uh, Foxworthy, Ron White, Ellen DeGeneres, Rosie O'Donnell, back when they were just, you know, comics. An amazing trip and then wow. I did some, did some radio when I when I came off the road the comedy thing was starting to wind down and I got a job offer in Raleigh my old hometown to do a morning show it was the number one morning show in Raleigh at the time I drove it to number six in 18 months one of my proudest accomplishments and I got fired I didn't just drive it in the ground I drove it in the middle earth and then comedy clubs were closing faster than opening so I thought well I'll do corporate comedy so I became a corporate comic and I did the rubber chicken circuit for till 90 no, till 2008 when the recession hit. And then my speaking business dropped off 80%. And then we filed bankruptcy. And then and after all that was over and we were rebuilding our lives, I got to thinking about, you know, what did I have to tell somebody? And there's a woman named Judy Carter who wrote a book called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. Mm-hmm. And I know Judy. And uh, so I read the book. And I thought going into the book, I got nothing. About halfway through, I got Oh my gosh, I do have something. So I used Judy's book to put my first TEDx talk together. And then I used a book called Talk Like Ted, the nine things that belong in every great TED talk to refine it. And I applied for my first TED talk and I got it. And that's when I came out at age 52. Nobody knew I was depressed and suicidal, not even my wife. She's getting ready to hit play on YouTube to see my TED talk for the first time. I said, look, honey, don't hit play yet. I got half a dozen things I need to tell you that you have no idea about. wow. Yeah, because, you know, we're great actors. We cover up. Uh, there's a reason I have a Screen Actors Guild card. You know, I'm, a, I'm a good actor. Um, anyway, so I came out, and what I found on the, on the, as I was preparing for the TED Talk, that even though people don't talk about depression, thoughts of suicide, even though 47,000 people a year die, one every 11 minutes in the U.S., they don't talk about it unless you bring it up. Just the mention of the words depression and suicide out loud the list is the most amazing stories from people. I mean, people I've just met. I, I met a woman on a cruise ship, and we're sitting having breakfast, and she said, uh, do you do anything besides cruise comedy? And I said, yeah, I'm a public speaker. I speak on suicide. Uh, she goes, I said, I got a TED Talk. She goes, what's the topic? I had this conversation many times. I said, um, depression and suicide. And she says, bear in mind, we just met. She says, I tried to kill myself twice. Really? <laughs> First time, not serious. College. Second time, far more serious. I graduated college. I graduated medical school. I had um, 
I had the knowledge, had the equipment, had an IV started in my ankle. Suicide cocktail in one hand, syringe in the other, getting ready to load it up. She said the phone rings. So she's wondering, does she pick it up? Well, better pick it up because somebody might worry. Come over, interrupt. Picked it up, her 13-year-old son. She says, I don't know if he heard something in my voice or had a premonition. But he said, Mom, don't do anything. So she says, I didn't. I didn't give up on the idea of suicide, but decided not to do it that day because I figured he'd feel guilty the rest of his life when there's something he could do or say to stop me from from dying by suicide. The good news is there are things you could do. There are things you could say because two reasons. One, eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. They want somebody to interrupt. And two, nine out of 10 during the last week before they attempt, give you hints, direct, indirect, verbal, behavioral. If you know what to look for, and we can talk about that later, you can interrupt that suicide. So I said to her, how old is he now? She goes, he's 21. I said, does he know his phone call saved your life? She goes, no. How do you start that conversation? And that became the theme of my TED Talk, start the conversation on suicide. Because if you just, if I, if I do it, it gives other people permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences without recrimination. Mm. And I've had every, almost every client's hired me in the last two years. They always say the same thing. Yeah, we brought you in. I'm waiting for it. Wait for it to start the conversation. That's going to be the name of my book, Starting the Conversation on Suicide, Life in the Exit Row. And the picture on the cover is a guy sitting in the exit row on an airplane right next to the window exit because that's where I live, right there. You know, because if things get too bad, my superpower is I just pull up the exit and go. Because because suicide is all about pain. People say to me, most mostly, I mean, there are some times where it's not about the pain, but People say, I can't believe he wanted to die. And my guess is he didn't want to die. He just or she just wanted to end that pain. Mm. So my pain gets to, ironically, my, my suicidal ideation um, keeps me alive because I know if the pain gets too bad, I'm gone. Mm. Uh, people ask me about the suicidal ideation. Maybe you saw this in the TED Talk. Uh, my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbidden. Get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. That's how my mind works. And almost every time I speak, somebody comes up afterwards and they have chronic suicidal ideation and they did not know it had a name. They thought they were just some kind of freak. It was just them. And the relief when they find out they're not alone is palpable yeah. because it's, it's, that's my why right there. Mm. You know, I, 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 maybe I've steered them far enough off the path of suicide. They'll live a normal life. And what occurred to me, Lance was, one evening after speaking and, and thinking about all those people who came up afterwards, and you know, maybe I steered off the path. I thought, oh my God, I'm George Bailey in the movie It's a Wonderful Life. I've been shown how these people's lives would be if I weren't here to speak and, and, and let them know they're not alone. Mm. And my second thought was, no, I can't kill myself because I'd take all these people with me. So, yeah, wow. Now, I, um, I like to kind of think back here and I'm, I'm curious as to, did you, did you always know, did you have these thoughts going back? Cause I know you kind of, you hit that spot in 2008, which so many people hit a rock bottom where they lost everything. I've, I've talked to so many people that year was such a, such a crazy year and people had to, they lost everything. They had to face like their hardest moment and it just, it blows my mind because how, how, how much this has come up, how people lost their houses, their, all their money and all that. But before that, did you, did you realize that you were depressed and suicidal? Is that why this is another question is like, you, I noticed this in comedians. A lot of comedians get into comedy because 
well, a lot of them are depressed. A lot oh, yeah. of them have these backgrounds of whatever, these crazy backgrounds. And then you find out later. And now I've just learned, you know, you start to learn about these actors and, and I mean, people like Robin Williams and such a, so good at putting on the facade of being these funny, happy people. But then you think, well, there had to be a reason. Did you get in, did you know when you got into comedy, the level deep that you were in with depression and suicidal thoughts, is that what kind of got you, helped get you in? Or was that just sort of, you know, did you get into it regardless? Or did well, you know? As is often the case with people who have mental illness, the uh, depression thoughts, suicide aren't necessarily situational. Uh, I've been most depressed and most suicidal at some of the best times in my life. Hmm. I was worried what would happen when it was the worst time in my life. And I now know. Um, and my third fourth TED talk was suicide, the secret of my success. Suicide got me into comedy because I was married to my first wife, wonderful woman. Just, we didn't belong together. Um, selling insurance, which I hated with a purple passion, uh, great business, but not for me. And I wasn't going to open mic night because my first wife didn't like that idea. And I thought, you know, I'm gonna, if I don't change something, I'm going to kill myself sooner rather than later. And then my second thought was, well, what have I got to lose? I'll divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works, great. And I think it will. If it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. So, you know, because I had nothing, absolutely nothing to lose, I could put it all on one roll of the dice. And I thought that was just me, as many people in mental illness do. And I have since met a goodly number of people who had the very same thought process. They're doing something. They're living a life they believe is not where they belong. They've got this dream. They think they belong over here and they think, you know, if I stay here, I'm going to kill myself. What the heck? What do I have to lose? Now, the a neuronormal person, they having the same basic thought process. I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy if it doesn't work. Oh, my gosh, I will have lost everything. So they choose that often, probably wisely. The devil they know versus the devil they don't. But because I had nothing to lose, that's why I'm a, I'm a comedian and speaker today because I, I was willing to, you know, put it all in that, that one roll of the dice. I, that's where I thought I belonged and turned out, thank the Lord, that's where I belonged. Um, so, yeah, so oddly, suicidal ideation keeps me alive because I've always got an exit strategy. And suicidal ideation got me into comedy because, it, you know, if I stayed put in my first marriage, I'd, I was going to kill myself. So what the heck? Might as well give it a shot. Mm. That makes sense. So yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. I, I didn't have my first suicidal thought till like, I separated from my first wife. It was an afternoon about five o'clock. That's my lowest time of day. Biorhythms or something. Driving down, uh, driving on Highway One Sixty Three in San Diego. Kind of a rainy day, and the thought flashed across my mind: Why don't you just kill yourself? And I thought, Holy smoke! Where'd that come from? I had been depressed up to that point. But I never had that thought that I could remember, that conscious thought. And then from that point on, it was, you know, it was always option C. Buy it, you get the car fixed, buy a new one, I can just kill myself. So, and that happens over and over and over and over and over and over and over. It's not really a serious thought about killing myself. I mean, it's, it's been happening so often that, you know, it's. Uh, I think uh, it's hard for me to, to believe that every human on the planet doesn't have that thought at some point. I mean, it doesn't mean you do it, but that's the thing is like, I don't think it has to be such a, it doesn't have to have this real scary taboo feel to it. It's, it's normal to, to, for that to flash. It's not your thought. I mean, there, there's times where we're really tough that we all go through. And of course, 
it's it, of course these thoughts are going to pop up in our heads, right? Obviously, there's a degree of further depression and mental illness that goes deeper than that. But I just anyone listening, like I just want people to be okay with, you know, we have shitty thoughts sometimes. You know, that's all <laughs> well, right. I mean, I've thought about it, but did I do it? No. I mean, I th- it's hard for me to believe when you're in a really shitty situation. Like, huh? Maybe that would be better. And then you go, no, no, this was this is better, right? But like yeah. that weird stigma around actually having a thought pop into your head. Ooh, you're a bad person. That's what needs to stop because it's normal. Like, well, it does need to stop. And here's why. Because when somebody dies by suicide, you hear this. He never said anything. He never gave any indication. And the, one of the reasons people don't say anything or give any indication is because it scares other people. Of judgment too. And if you do it to your therapist, um, they could – they could have you in front of a judge for an involuntary detention order and you could spend three days in a mental health facility with no shoestrings or belt. So I believe if we gave people permission to give voice to those thoughts, like you're talking about, you know, your mm-hmm. divorce, your bankrupt, you're thinking, you say to somebody, you know, <laughs> cross my mind. I just, you know, maybe I just kill myself because it's just, you know, it's not really a, I think a lot of people have that thought in a situation yeah. where they've lost their job or divorced or, you know, dropped out of school, whatever, but it's a passing thought. You know, yeah. generally it's, it's, um, you know, it, it doesn't with depression, major depressive disorder, it lasts two days to two weeks and it recurs on some kind of cycle. Whereas situational, like a divorce, a bankruptcy, you know, flunking out of college or whatever, um, much more situational. And, and sometimes people take, uh, you know, antidepressants for a couple of months just to take the edge off. And then there, I had a cousin who did that. She had a really bad time. Husband died of, um, and several letters or something. And she just said, you know, I just need something. Six months later, she stopped. She's fine. Mm. Um, just need to something to take the edge off. So I think everybody has those moments. And if we could just give voice, let them give voice to those things. So I think when you, um, you know, there's a protocol. If somebody, you know, is depressed and suicidal, you ask, do they have a plan? If they have a plan, you ask them, what is their plan? And if it's detailed, you need to get them on the phone with a hotline. Or have them text uh, help to seven four one seven four one for younger people, but I think the next question should be if they're not if they don't have a really detailed plan, just you know thoughts of suicide, they should be able to give voice to that, and then you should say, well, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, I believe the next question should be, well, tell me why not. Make them give voice to whatever it is that's keeping them alive. My parents, my kids, my pets, my whatever. And we've already talked about what keeps me alive is I've seen the impact that my speaking has on other people, letting them know they aren't alone. Mm-hmm. And perhaps, you know, steer them off the path of suit. That's my why. That keeps me here. Because I know if I if I did something to myself, I'd take all those people with me. So, How has your speaking helped you heal your, your, you know, depression or whatever you're going through? Because I know for myself, when I tell my story, when I am connecting with others like yourself and going through this and kind of revisiting it, it helps me feel better. It helps me heal a lot. And in turn, I believe that gives permission to people to think the same, to share their story. You know, how is it, how do you feel after a talk, after you just inspired people or it can't help, but help you? No, it's very therapeutic. Uh, Although I came to the conclusion not long ago, I used to say I battled, battle depression. Well, that's not true. Battle implies you can win and I cannot win. I'm just hardwired for it. Uh, I can lose or I can tie kind of an uneasy truth truths like north and south korea um what because i was always you know bumping up against it like this and there's a martial art called aikido aikido and aikido is all about blending with the energy of your 
partner. And so rather than bump up against the depression like this, I try to blend with the energy because it has a great energy. Because in Aikido, you blend with the energy, and then you, at, one, at some point, you're both moving in the same direction. You're both seeing the world the same way. And I try to adopt that attitude. Rather than resist it, I blend with the energy and go move forward with it. Um, but I can't win. It's, it's, it's part of me. And I do believe my third TED Talk was about the evolutionary advantages of mental illness. And you mentioned it. There are comedians and artists and politicians and athletes. A lot of them have, you know, a goodly number have a mental illness. And I believe the mental illness and the mental ableness are just two parts of the same wiring. It's not a singularity. It's a duality. The premise of the talk is, what if those of us living with a mental illness are not living with a genetic mutation, but an amazing evolutionary adaptation? What if you could convince a child, yes, you have a, a mental disability? But you also have some mental abilities your peers cannot touch. Because every kid I've ever met who had a mental illness that wasn't completely dysfunctional had some kind of superpower, athletic, musical, artistic, great writer. And it can't be, I can't believe it's a coincidence. Mm. So you treat the mental illness, but you embrace, you energize, and you, you, you encourage the mental ableness, whatever it happens to be, and steer them into a career path. You know, using that, that Google's now hiring people on the spectrum, on the aut autism Asperger spectrum, who have a singular ability. They can't carry on a conversation, but the, the thing that they do, they do amazingly well. Mm. So, What do you think people can do on their own to help them without, without going into the, the pharmaceutical drug aspect? Like, What can people that are, that are feeling these things on a day-to-day -day basis to help them get through these moments when they're feeling down? Is there some tools or some mindset things that people can work on? Like, is there anything that you've been doing or anything that you recommend to people yeah. struggling? We talked about the book that we just came out with this week, yeah. uh, guts, guts, Grit and the Grind, a men's, uh, men's mental mechanics manual. And it's, it's, it's written like a, an automobile owner's manual. Premise being, if men took care of their brains like they take care of, uh, sorry, if men took care of their cars like they take care of their brains, they better buy a bus pass. And it's all about what they call a safe care plan. You know, when you buy a car, um, there's a chance you're going to break down or it's going to be a flat tire or whatever. So what do you do? You prepare ahead. You get a AAA membership. You got a jack in the trunk. You got flares. You got a first aid kit. And then, you know, there's safety equipment in the car. There's airbags and seat belts. So you need to design, a, um, you know, a plan like that for your, to deal with your mental illness. So, uh, I do, um, diet exercise, good night's sleep, uh, meditation, medication. And I didn't do medication until I was 60 and I can't, after three weeks, I couldn't believe I hadn't done it earlier. And by the way, there's a, there's a thing you can do, uh, for medication. If, if I hadn't gotten the, the, a good medication or right medication for me initially, you can get a cheek swab DNA test and they compare your DNA to a long list of antidepressants, they find the ones that would work best with your metabolism. So it shrinks the list. So there's a lot less lab rat, go on, taper off, go on, taper off. Um, so I don't, some people will believe in simply a pharmaceutical approach. I believe in a more holistic exercise, diet, good night's sleep, you know, meditation, yeah. medication. Uh, also, Me um, friends and family, a support group, people who know, you know, I have friends who know what I live with and I can say, I can say to them, you know, they ask me how my day is going, and I go, you know, I'm 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 on the ragged edge. It's horrible, because most time when people ask how you're doing, fine, you know, living the dream, blah blah blah. But the, you know, these are friends who I, I don't have to, you know, I don't have to put on a game face. 
I can tell them what it is that you know, is going on in my head. So yeah, so it's all the book is all about preparation uh, and maintenance. You know, car maintenance. Uh, your brakes start to squeak. You better replace the brakes because you know they squeak long enough. Sooner or later, you're going to put your foot on the brake and go straight to the floor with no pressure, and you're going to go off whatever cliff. You know what I mean? Mm. Oil change. You know, top off the fluids. Same idea with mental health. You stay constantly. You know, doing doing self maintenance. So your machine, your brain continues to run. Here's my favorite analogy. Don't you wish that the man in your life had a check engine light? So it goes on. He goes to the mental mechanic, and the mental mechanic goes, Hey, Bob, no wonder you're depressed. You're too quarts low on serotonin. It'd be really nice if we had one of those. But that's the premise in terms of you know, maintenance and preparing ahead because you know, you know there may be times when you're going to need AAA. Are you going to need a therapist? Are you going to need family members, or you know, or whatever? So, um, yeah. So, do you have here? Here's my my thought on this: is that do you have almost like a checklist of things first, and then go to medication? Because if you, a lot of times, if you you, this is from my experience when I am feeling at my my best or my worst, and people around me. There's a there's like a checklist of things that you do first, you know, like, you know, are are you sleeping? Are you eating properly? Are you exercising? Are you hydrating? Are you do you have a spiritual practice? Are you meditating? There's all these things, and if they're all no's, you know, if you're eating McDonald's every day, if you're constantly <laughs> drinking Coca Cola, and you're constantly, you know, talking to yourself, you're in this dark spot, and you're not doing any of the other things. Right, I don't think anybody is going to feel good. But do you have that where you kind of go, okay, do these things first, and if that still doesn't work, then go do the other route? Because I feel that there are things people can do first, but obviously there's different levels, and it goes deeper. Of course, each one, each person has a different thing. But do you recommend doing that more holistic first, and then exploring something deeper? I know you mentioned it a bit. Well, and that's what I did. I was on uh, there's, there's a over the counter um, supplement called Sammy S A M dash E. It's good on mild depression. I use that for from 1995 till till I turned 60, which was three years ago, and mm-hmm. it took the edge off in the afternoon just enough. Sometimes I didn't know it was five o'clock, so it's my yeah. that's my worst time of day. And my wife, when I turned 60, she said, you know, just give it a try. But I mean, at, at that point, I was, I was on the keto diet. I'm doing the uh, intermittent fasting, 18-6. I'm getting a good night's sleep. Um, and, you know, and I'm meditating half an hour meditation, a nap twice a day. So I, I was doing everything else I possibly could to, okay. you know, mitigate. Uh, and I suggest, yeah, uh, something you're missing is talking to a mental health professional. There came a time, according to the, one of my co-authors, Sarah Gare, there came a time in this country when, when psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists stopped looking for and treating the soul. In other words, trying to figure out what was wrong, and they defaulted to pharmacology mm. rather than dig deeper and figure out where the pain was coming from. So Some I think, sort of trauma or something, right? Yeah. So I think you need to, in addition to do a nice sleep, exercise, diet, you need to explore and figure out what's the source you know, some of it may be organic, just the way you're wired, but some of it may be um, childhood trauma or or something else. And then, then select, you know, and I do the DNA cheek swab, then select a small dose of whatever uh, medication is recommended. And then, because my doctor said to me after, after I had 
took what basically the bottom line dose. He goes, I can give you more. And I go, no, no, that's fine. It's just, it's just enough so that it shortened my cycle from three days to two and it spread out the, spread out the times, you know, more time in between, mm. which is fine. I still get down, still have the same symptoms, but it's shorter and it's, they're farther apart and I can live with that rather than take additional medication. Uh, yeah. So, you know, medication is a part of the puzzle, but you're right. Yeah. If you're eating McDonald's and you're not hydrating and you're not exercising and you're smoking and you're, you know, it's, I've had several heart surgeries because I was born with a bad heart valve. My dad gave it to me. Um, I was talking to my nurse. I was getting my second valve replacement. First one wore out. Uh, I said to him, hey, man, how's business? He goes, look, Frank, as long as people make bad lifestyle choices, I'll have a job. Yeah. (laughs) So a lot of it is about lifestyle. Uh, And, you know, it may come down to where you may actually need something from from the pharmacy. But again, I, I, that, I, just because I'm taking a pill doesn't mean I'm going to stop all those other things. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you my fifth TED talk? Because I did, there's one thing in my self-care plan that, that I didn't tell you about. I did my fifth TED talk last November. It's called Mental Health and the Orgasm. Treat your depression single-handedly. And I hold up my iPhone. I go, I love my iPhone, but it's my second favorite handheld device. And there are, the whole premise was there are, um, palliative benefits of the orgasm, no matter how you get it. Yeah. It, you know, it raises um, endorphins and DHEA, lowers cortisol, uh, there's a lymphatic massage, a blood rush. There's all kinds of things that, you know, men who, who do that more often, you know, hmm. self-pleasure have a 20% lower rate of prostate cancer. Hmm. And so <laughs> that would be the other, yeah, meditate, medicate, and masturbate um, in my uh, self-care plan. Um, because, you know, it's, like I said, it, it it creates um, endorphins and all these other things, uh, you know, and, and as I said, in my Ted talk, it's a victimless crime, you know, yeah. <laughs> nobody gets hurt. Nobody gets sick. Nobody gets pregnant. Uh, I, you know, you can do it anywhere. I, I did it on an airplane one time in the laboratory. I, I joined the mile high club. I was by myself. So I got an individual <laughs> membership, but it was the first Ted talk I've ever gotten a standing ovation for. Uh, Cause there were science in there, mm-hmm. but you know, funny. So the yeah. science was a lot easier to digest. I mean, there's some serious science in there about the benefits of the, of that for men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, and pe- but people, you would think people don't talk about depression and suicide. Man, they do not talk about you know orgasm. Yeah. I mean, that, you want to see a cocktail party clear out in a hurry, bring up orgasm. What? It's <laughs> so funny. <laughs> such interesting. We're interesting creatures. How certain things can't be. People get so uncomfortable comfortable talking about. We turn back into like five year old kids. Like woo. Ooh, yeah. we'll talk about that. <laughs> well, in, in my talk, I said, you know, you, you, you mentioned depression and suicide and everybody's got a story. You mentioned yeah. masturbation, and orgasm, everybody's got someplace else to be. Yeah, so, uh, but yeah, yeah, so I believe, I believe, you know, uh, I would, I would, um, I would take a holistic approach and yeah. make sure, you know, do the, check the boxes. Am I eating right? Am I getting a nice sleep? Am I hydrating? Am I exercising? Am I not smoking? Am I not drinking alcohol to excess? Am I not? Yeah. And again, back to the car maintenance, you know, um, the fuel, like I said, food. In the in the in our book, we talk about how you know if you put bad gas in a car, yeah, it's not going to run right. You put bad food in your body, it's like a car; it's not going to run at its you know at its peak mm-hmm. performance. Uh, if you don't maintain it, if you don't maintain a car, sooner or later it's going to break down. If you don't maintain your body, same thing. So that's why we use the car metaphor because there's so many things that, you know, that, that they cross over, rotate the tires, you know, make sure that everything's working. Um, if you don't replace the wiper blades. 
you know, all of a sudden you can't see where you're going. Exactly. So anyway, that's, yeah. I'm, that's I'm, the thing. That's, that's the thing. That's where I'm, I'm really glad we, we, we went here because my whole point is there's so many people are, our world is in a world where everybody wants a quick fix to everything. Everything needs to be this instant gratification. You need to get the thing right now. And sometimes you got to put in the work and the time to figure these things out and go deeper than just taking something. And like, that's where I, I, because of my younger brother and we lost him because he was on medication, which led him to suicidal thoughts. That's why I have a a hard time with people getting medication when it's not the right time, right thing. And I like the idea of the swab because that eliminates the list. But I'm, I, I look back now and I think, man, like, you know, he had the Asperger's, he had like signs of that. And it just all made sense now. But for me, I'm like, man, there's so many things that could have been done before that. And that's really what I, I want to just people listening is like, you know, there's make sure that you have those things done first, because not everything's a quick fix. It's really your body is such a unique instrument that has so many factors that could be causing different things. And I just, I love that you talked about how, you know, it is like a car and you have to see, like, are you maintaining things properly? Are you putting the right things in? If it, the answer is no, then the first answer isn't to take a thing to like cover it up. There's well, deeper that, than, right? that said, Lance, you yeah. know, in the depths of depression, yeah, uh, it's difficult to do those, yeah. those things. So it may be that you need the medication, um, to be able to get out of bed in the morning, to begin yeah. building your self-care plan, to get sure. you to the gym, to, you know, to shower, to eat right. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's a balance. Yeah. Um, if you can't get out of bed, and a lot of yeah. people a lot of people can't, here's, here's the analogy I use. Yeah. There's a Greek character named Sisyphus, and he gave fire to man, and the other guys got pissed off. And so they, they sentenced him to roll a rock up a hill every day, if you remember your high school mythology, and he'd get it right into the top, it'd roll back down. Every morning he'd get up, he'd roll the rock up the hill, and by evening it'd roll back down. Having a mental illness is often like that. Mm-hmm. Every day there's a rock and a hill. Some days a rock is small and the hill's not so steep, and you can get up and go to the gym, get up and shower, yeah. get up. And some days a rock is a boulder, and the hill is Kilimanjaro, and you cannot move. Yeah. And and the day comes when you can't move the rock at all, and that's you know you just people say I'm so tired, and they're not really physically tired. Generally, they're mentally tired. Mm-hmm. They just can't. And the irony, the the double-edged sword sometimes of antidepressants is sometimes people are horribly depressed, wretchedly depressed, can't get out of bed. They take an antidepressant and it gives them just, just enough energy so they can get up and kill themselves. That's the... Oh, man. Yeah, that's, that's the double-edged sword sometimes of the... Uh, it's not that the medication caused them to have suicidal thoughts or, or die by suicide. It just gave them enough gumption hmm. to get it done. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so you gotta be very careful. That's why I believe in testing the medication, sure. make, making sure. And again, let's, let's treat the soul. Let's yeah. find out what is at the base of the problem. And if, if you give medication to begin with, to keep them alive, to do the digging and to begin to build a safe care plan. And then you can always back off on the medication as yeah. they get healthier in other ways. And that's a common story. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I got the medication and I began to take care of myself, go to the gym and eat right and take my supplements and have therapy. And so slowly, but surely they back off. Now they may not ever come all the way off, 
but they can back it down to where it's just like for me, isn't it down like giddy, but it, it's just enough to take the sharp edge off the depression. Yeah. Oh yeah. Fair enough. And and that's, yeah, everybody's case is different, right? Everybody's, everybody's deeper or, you know, um, but yeah, it's definitely, it's a, it's a sensitive topic and I'm I'm glad that it's being addressed more these days. And, you know, the more you can build awareness for this, the more people can start to, you know, work towards their healing and whatever that looks like. Well, let's talk about this uh, and your brother in that people often say to me, uh, never gave any indication, had no idea. It's similar. We raise German shepherds and every now and then you hear somebody go, I got bit by a dog, bitten by a dog. And the dog never gave me an indication he was going to bite me. Well, that's not true. If you know dogs, you know, the first thing that happens is their eyes, they freeze. Their yeah. eyes go flat, their ears go back a little, and last but not least, their hackles come up. So the dog is throwing signs like, dude, don't come any closer. I don't want to bite you. Don't come any closer. I don't want to bite you. And then they get bitten, and they're, they're sure that depression and suicide. So if it's okay with you, we'll talk about how do you know if somebody that you love is depressed? It's a great uh, question. Yeah, and I'll give you, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are some of the, some of the, you know, the more obvious. Um, but oftentimes they have difficulty getting up in the morning. Well, they tend to rally in the afternoon. Um, they eat too much, can't eat, sleep too much, can't sleep. So it's kind of a either or. Um, they let they let their personal hygiene go. You know, they used to be pretty well put together, but the clothes are dirty, the hair's dirty. Um, when I when I talk to dentists about their patients, I said, look, if this person's been taking really good care of their teeth for years, they come in, the hair's kind of dirty and the dirty clothes, and, and you can tell they're not flossing or whatever. That's a bad sign because they're 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 just haven't got the energy to. Then the question comes up, what do you say to somebody who's depressed? Well, here, here's what you don't say. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? Uh, here's what you do say. I'm here for you, and I made it. You're not lazy, crazy, or self-absorbed. I understand that depression is a mental illness. But the good news is with time and treatment, things will get better. I'll take the time. I'll help you get the treatment. And here's the question that I have difficulty asking. Most people do. You have to ask, are you having thoughts of suicide? There's no wives' tale that you should never mention the S word suicide in front of somebody who's depressed. And as a comedian, I love the uh, reasoning. It'll give them the idea. Suicide. What a great idea. Why did I think of that? Trust me. It's crossed their mind. Okay. So let's say they say they're not suicidal. How do you know? How can you tell by just watching, you know, and, and paying attention? Well, they are talking about death and dying, Googling death and dying. Death and dying appears as a theme in their artwork. They're writing their music. Um, they are getting their affairs in order. They're collecting the means to die by suicide, whether it's a gun and ammunition or stockpiling medication. They're giving away personal possessions because they want to make sure they go to people they want them to go to when they're gone. And if they give away a pet, that's top of the pyramid of giving away personal possessions. And here's a counterintuitive one that's extremely dangerous. They've been depressed forever, and then they're happy for no apparent reason. And you're happy because they're happy, finally problem is they may be happy because they've chosen time place and method and they know the pain is finite again it circles back to the pain they've chosen time place method and that's why they're happy because they know it's coming to an end so what do you say to somebody who's suicidal here's what you don't say you're looking for attention you're being melodramatic nobody who talks about it ever does it here's what you do say don't do it and then you ask them we talked about this do you have a plan if they have a plan, what is your plan? If it's detailed, you need to get them on the phone with the suicide prevention hotline. And if they won't pick up the phone, you pick up the phone. You call the suicide prevention hotline, and the volunteer will do their best to talk the phone into the hand of the person who's in crisis. If it's a young person, there's a text line. Text the word HELP to 741741. 
because young people tend to be more forthcoming on texts. The question always comes up, when do you call the cops? If they're an immediate danger to themselves or other people, you have no choice mm. but to call the police. And we talked about this earlier. If they have a plan, but it's not particularly detailed, then you say to them, well, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, you say, tell me why not. Make them give voice to mm. whatever it is that's keeping them around. Um, that way, if they feel comfortable saying, look, I've got thoughts of suicide, but I'm not going to do it, and here's why. So that's 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 that. When I do a keynote, I cover those points because because eight out of ten people who are suicidal are ambivalent. They want somebody to say something or interrupt. Mm. Nine out of ten will be throwing hints at you in the week leading up to their attempt, mm. hoping somebody will notice. And so your listeners now have an idea of what the symptoms, signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts of suicide. And here's what I tell them. If you walk by somebody and you think to yourself, gosh, I think, I don't know why I'm thinking this, but something's wrong with Bob. I get the feeling he may, he may be thinking about suicide. Go with your intuition. You may have been picking up hints you weren't aware of. Always go with your intuition. Always ask, are you having thoughts of suicide? And if you can't ask, find somebody who can. Mm. So that's, that's, that's my basic keynote right there. Oh, that's uh solid, man. That's a great conversation. I really appreciate it. What else, what else do you got work? What are you working on right now and where can everybody find you? I uh, think find me at um, the mental, the, the mental health comedian.com. My phone number's there. My email's there. That's my Facebook business page, the mental health comedian. You're welcome to Lance publish my phone number in the show notes. I, I do it every keynote I give. I put my phone number up there. Mm-hmm. Because I tell people, look, if you're having, if you're suicidal, call the hotline. Mm-hmm. If you're just having a really bad day, call a crazy person. Mm-hmm. Because we speak the same language, we're not going to judge. We're just going to listen. Mm-hmm. And and I had a guy call me one time, and I picked up the phone. And he goes, "Oh my God, this is really your cell phone number." I go, "How cool would that be to put a fake number up there for people who are really having a bad day?" Yeah, I go, "Let me." Let, let me take it one step farther, you know, farther for you as a comic. Let me tell you how I make this funny. Not only is it a fake number, but here's what you hear. Hold, please. And the next thing you hear is the on-hold music. Another one bites the dust. And another one gone. And another one gone. Another one bites the dust. Yes, yeah, so that's my phone number. So call a call a And people call me. It, sometimes it's not about them. Sometimes I got one the other day. Guy said, look, my roommate, I've been on his Facebook page. He's, 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 he's posting stuff I think is dangerous, but I can't really tell. Would you go through his last half dozen posts and tell me if what he's saying is dangerous? And sure enough, it was. And he said, what am I going to do? I said, well, where is he? He goes, a thousand miles away. I said, do you know his address, his physical address? I do. Call the police in that town and say, look, I just want you to go by and have a welfare check. The stuff he's put on his Facebook page you know, according to a friend of mine who speaks on suicide, is dangerous. I think he may be circling up to suicide. And they'll go by and knock on the door. Now, bear in mind, if they find him suicidal, actively suicidal, they'll take him to jail. And he may spend three days in that facility, and he'll be pissed. Mm. He'll probably unfriend you, but he'll be alive. Mm. So that, that's my advice. You know, that's kind of what people call me about, you know, it's not just them. It's a loved one. It's a you know fraternity brother or roommate from college or whatever. They're just looking for resources. Mm. Um, and most every town has a NAMI, National Alliance of Mental Illness, N-A-M-I, NAMI. And they have all sorts of resources, peer counseling, you know, peer-to-peer, family-to-family, and, and everything they do is free. Mm-hmm. So if you're having an issue, 
with a family member or friend, look up your local NAMI, N-A-M-I, National Alliance of Mental Illness. Just go in and say, what kind of resources have you got for this? And again, every bit of it is free. They give it all away. Mm. Awesome. Appreciate that. Um, to end things, wrap it up. I'm going to, I always ask one question and I know that this is, you've kind of answered it, but I just always like to ask it. What is one lesson that adversity has taught you? In the last two weeks? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's what I mean. It's like you could go anywhere with it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, my wife would tell you, there's an old joke about a kid, the young, like a little boy who's an optimist. And he's, he's so optimistic, it's annoying. So they decide the world will fix him. So they put him in a room full of horse manure. I mean, it's just wall to wall, like two, three feet deep in horse manure. They come back a half hour later. The kid's in the middle of a pile throwing horse manure up in the air, laughing like crazy. And they open the door and go, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, this horse manure, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. So I'm always looking for the pony. Where's the, where's the pony in the horse manure? There's got to be, there's got to be a life lesson or, you know, something, you know, something. Yeah. And I do believe that it's the, you know, people say it's not the destination, it's the journey. I think it's the, um, you know, the battle. It's the, you know, the struggle that gives, you know, the sort of helps you. I can't think of the right word, but it's all about the struggle. You know, it's, 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 it's every day, you know, especially if you have mental illness, getting out of bed sometimes is, it's, the, yeah, the heart, the longest mile for me is uh, from my front door to the gym. If I get to the gym and I, I always, you know, do some working out, but that first, that mile from my front door to the gym, that's tough for me. Mm. And just for your listeners, uh, I do what's called gamification. I make a deal with myself. If I get out the door into the gym, all I have to do is one rep of one exercise. I can go home. Now, I've never gone in and done one rep of one exercise, but that's the game. I go, look, here's the deal. You get to the gym. All you got to do is one rep, one exercise. You turn around and go home. You know, you find yourself at the gym. You're dressed out. You get on the elliptical runner, you know, and I do on the elliptical runner. I'm going to do 15 minutes. And I get 15. I think I'll do 20. If I do 20, I can I stop. And so you, it's called gamification. You make a deal with yourself that, you know, you are, if, you, if you do this much, you can leave or quit or go home. And I always end up doing far more than whatever the minimum was. But the, that minimum, all I could just go into one rep, one exercise, that gets me out of the house and to the gym. And apparently, I, I, I didn't know it had a name. I didn't know it was called gamification. I've been doing it forever. It's but, awesome. Uh, yeah, just a trick to get you out of bed and get to the gym. Right on, man. Well, I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on and hanging out with us and, you know, giving us so much value. And I encourage everyone, all you guys listening, to go check out Frank's TED Talks. He's got, what, you got five of them now? Six of them? Yep. Uh, four of them online. Fifth one's coming on here in the next month or so. Cool. Or the book, uh, Guts, Grit, and Grind. It's on Amazon now. It's a, it's, a men's, it's a men's mental health book. There weren't any men's mental health books when we started. Uh, one of the co-authors went looking. They just couldn't find any, so we, we wrote one. Awesome. It's stories of men and their struggles to help other men. Amazing. Yeah, awesome. We, uh, we'll have everything, all, all that in the show notes for people to check you out, man. Thank okay. you so much. Lance, my pleasure. Frank King, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Hope you guys appreciated that episode. Hope you got value. If you did, let me know. I always like getting DMs. Oh, I love that episode. I like seeing reviews. Share it with a friend who's going through something, you guys, and I would love your feedback. Thank you so much. Have a beautiful day.